Thank you for listening to the Grace Harvest Church podcast. For more information, go to graceharvestchurch.org. Good morning, church. How y'all doing? We've been in a series here for a while, and especially if you're a guest here, we've been doing a series called Together, where we're looking at relationships, relationships with God, divine, the vertical, and relationships with one another, the horizontal. And today, I'm going to talk to you about marriage, or I should say mowage, right? Yeah. We're going to talk about marriage, and, and my message today, if you're taking notes, because I know all of you are avid note takers, right? My, my title today is God Has Built Your Marriage to Last. A married couple had a quarrel and ended up giving each other the silent treatment. A week into their mute argument, ouch, how many of you have ever, well, don't, don't confess that. A week into their mute argument, the man realized he needed his wife's help. Uh-oh. In order to catch a flight to Chicago for a business meeting, he had to get up at 5 a.m. the next morning. Not wanting to be the first to break the silence, he wrote on a piece of paper, please wake me up at 5 a.m. The next morning, the man woke up only to discover his wife was already out of bed, and it was 9 a.m. His flight had long since departed. He was about to find his wife and demand an answer for her failings when he noticed a piece of paper by the bed. He read, it's 5 a.m., wake up. Ouch. So let me just start out by saying my first point today is if you want to have a marriage that will last, don't do that. That's the worst. See, if we're going to have successful marriages, we have to understand God's intention and God's desire when it comes to the marriage relationship. We must believe that He is for us and that He wants our marriages to last and be blessed. Jesus, as the last Adam, came to restore God's original intention for everything, including marriage. God has blessed the marriage relationship and wants to help us keep our love vibrant, healthy, and fulfilling. If we are discouraged with our current relationship, God wants to restore and heal our love and give us a new beginning. He is the God who is with us, and He is the God who is for us in our relationships. Amen? Now, I, I just want to comment on that opening statement a little bit, and, and, and that is I want us to look at what I, I shared at the very beginning of this series, and that is in order for us to understand relationships, we have to go back to the beginning. We have to go back to the original intention. It's like if we're going to understand what God had in mind, we have to look at His blueprints. And unfortunately, we live in a time in our culture and our society where a lot of people are building a life, building a home, building a family, building a marriage, not according to the pattern that God originally gave us in the beginning, but according to their own ideas. And so what you have is people decide, I'm going to build my house, I'm going to build my life, and I know better than God's original blueprint, and so I'm going to, I'm, I'm not, it doesn't need a foundation, it doesn't need, I don't need to use these materials and build this way with the walls, and, and, and I don't need to frame this way. I don't really need to use nails or screws there. I, I have other ideas, and I don't really need a roof to be this way. It can bear loads without code, right? I can, I can figure it out without God's insights. I can do it on my own, and what we have societally is 
houses, marriages, families collapsing everywhere. And the reason that they're collapsing is they don't have the ability to bear the weight of the time that we live because they're not built according to the pattern. They're not built according to the blueprint. They're built according to our own ways and our own thinking, right? God said in the book of Isaiah, and we know the text, my ways are not your ways. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways above your ways, right? And so we we get to see that God has something different in mind than what we are seeing is, is acceptable in pop culture, right? And so today, I wanna, I wanna start with Jesus answering a question in Matthew chapter nine, verse six, and this is gonna be my key text for the day. And I want you to look at this with me, and this is gonna be kind of the foundation that we build off of for the rest of the, of the message. Matthew nineteen six says this. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together let not man separate. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And we're going to talk today about what it means to have God join something together and the fact that we live in a society where people, where human beings, where pop culture is trying to separate something that God has joined together. Amen? So if you're a note taker, my first main point today is that God has a good intention for your marriage. God has a good intention for your marriage. And all the points that I'm going to share now are sub-points of that. So first of all, God's intention for your marriage is to reflect His image in the earth. Remember, if we're going to go back and look at original intent and, and understand God's blueprint, that's going to show us why marriage exists. What's the purpose of marriage? What's the meaning of marriage? Why did God establish this relationship, this institution we call marriage? Why is it important? Well, if we want to understand that, we have to see that, first of all, God's intention was that it would reflect His image in the earth. God wants people to see Him in your marriage. When you love and serve each other together, people see an example of God's nature. Genesis 1.27 says this, So God created man in His own image. In the image of God, He created him. Male and female, He created them. So when God wanted other human beings, principalities and powers, spiritual beings, when He wanted all of humanity and spiritual powers to understand His character and nature on planet Earth, He set out to create image bearers that would reflect that. And those image bearers were male and female brought together in a holy union and blessed by God. And that male and female union would reflect God's character and nature. And as these two people who are the same yet different come together and learn how to become one over the course of a lifetime, they begin to reflect something of what God's nature is like. They begin to show the world that God is the God who serves, who loves, who lays his life down for the sake of the other, that God is the God who gives himself at his own expense that the other might be benefited. So when when God said, hey, I want creation to see what I'm like, I don't want you to make idols, I don't want you to make anything after any images after anything in the heavens or on earth, I'm going to construct my own images. 
And those images are male and female in marriage reflecting my nature and my character. Secondly, God's intention for your marriage is to give you true and intimate companionship. Genesis 2.18 says, And the Lord God said, It's not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. You see, there's something really beautiful. If you read between the lines here, when God says it's not good, that's the first time he ever said in Scripture that something wasn't good. In Genesis 1, we have the whole creation narrative. And in the creation narrative, at the end of every day, after God had created the, the heavens and put the stars, hung the stars and the moon and everything, you know, and then he creates things on the earth and the creatures at the end of every day, he steps back as this artist. He observes and he enjoys and he admires what he has made. He gives it the kiss of approval and he says, it's good, it's good, it's good. And at the end of the sixth day, when he created man and then woman, he steps back from everything. He looks at man and woman as image bearers and everything he's created, and he says, it's very good. And then in Genesis chapter 2, God says it's not good. What did he say wasn't good? For men or women to be alone. Now, this doesn't just apply to marriage. This applies to all human relationships. This, for those of you that are single, it's not, this isn't God's way of saying that, you know, being single is bad. It's God's way of saying that singles need people, need relationships. If you're a person that's an introvert and you have a tendency to like to kind of isolate yourself and you're just really good being home alone, no, you're not. Even you, in certain types of settings, need people. You need people. You need community. You need connections. It's not good for human beings to be alone. So what does God do? He makes helpers. He makes someone that fits. And so he brings the man and the woman together in this relationship where they complement each other and they fit each other and they, they give each other what the other is lacking. And in that, we see the full image of God, right? It's beautiful. It's God's way. It's God's intention. Number three, God's intention for your marriage is to provide a place for children to be nurtured and trained for God's purpose. Genesis 1.28, you notice I'm going back to Genesis and almost all of these texts, the first two chapters, because that's where the blueprint is. And God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Be fruitful and multiply. Now, again, if we're going to look at the original blueprint, we have to recognize something. God wants a big family. Do you know at the center of, of all of God creating is the multiplication of beings that were like him so that he could have this literally like have a giant family gathering. I remember I've shared this here before, but I remember years ago, and some of you are going to think this is weird, and that's okay. Think, think away. But I was praying one day, and I, 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 I was kind of being real serious, you know. I'm, I can be that way sometimes real serious, real intense about where I was in my life and, 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 you know, God wanting to please Him and do everything just right. And as I was praying, I, I kind of saw a vision in my mind, you know, in, kind of in my head. And I saw God in, in heaven, in the new heavens and the new earth, whatever you want to say, but I saw God and He was kind of almost like sitting on a stool 
And around him was a sea of humanity, as far as the eye could see in every direction. And God was sitting there, and all of us looked like little children. And we were doing what little children do. We were giggling. And you know what God was doing? Telling jokes. I'm serious. God was telling jokes, and then we, all of heaven would break out in peals of childlike laughter. And at that moment, it's like the Holy Spirit spoke to me and said, you're being pretty serious. I am a God of joy and a God of pleasure, not just a God that wants everything to be just right. Right? And it reminded me of the character and the nature of God. And God, His desire is for children to have a place that's healthy, that's safe, where children can understand the necessity of male and female, giving them the image of God, showing them how those relationships move and work together, how they complement one another, so that kids can grow up having that balanced perspective of what it means to be human, so that they can taste and see that God is good through their parental relationships. We know the fall came in. We know that many homes are broken. We know that a lot of pain comes out of the family, but that wasn't God's original intention. God's intention was that these relationships would beautifully model a place for children to be safe, to be strengthened, to be trained, to have put into them the right stuff. Amen. Number four, God's intention for your marriage is for the two of you to reach His world together. This isn't talked about much, but I'm going to tell you, marriage is about more than just the two of you finally finding your soulmate, finally being able to have sex and it's okay in the eyes of God. Right? Whatever, whatever the reasons are, having that person that, you know, you can build a life with, have a family with, all of those things are a part of it. But, but did you realize that marriage is actually for God's purpose? Like, ultimately, marriage is for the glory of God. It's to bring Him honor, to bring Him pleasure, to bring Him joy. That's why He backs it. That's why He fights for it. And that's why He hates divorce. Because marriage to God is His image bearers in the earth. And and, and the world seeing that God is good, that God is kind, that God is wise, that God is right and true and just. And so God has a world that needs to be reached. Jesus came and, you know, he, at the end of his ministry on earth, he gave what we call the Great Commission. And it says, Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you to the end of the age. Now, when Jesus said that, a lot of us don't realize that, but realize this, but, you know, there was potentially 500 or 120, we don't know, but there was a lot of people on that mountain. And Jesus was ready, was ready to ascend, and he's giving them kind of his last, the last orders before he ascends into heaven. And there would have been male and female, husband and wife, families on that mountain. And when Jesus says to them, go and make disciples, he's saying, you know, and for you married folk, as you go about life, as you walk your kid down the street in that carriage, as you go to the grocery store, as you mow your lawn, as you go to your job, Everything you do is you have people over to your home. Everything that you're doing is ultimately to show forth the image of God in the earth and to let people out there know God's real. God loves you. Jesus came for you. 
died for you, rose again for you. He's ascended to the right hand of God. He's sending His Holy Spirit, and He's coming again. And the world needs to know that through us. We become His extensions. And so you have a purpose. Those of you that are married people in this room, you have a purpose. And I'm not trying to trip on you, put more pressure on you. You might already feel like your life is full. But here, here's, here's my message to you. you. You probably don't need to change your routines. You just need to add in the idea that in those routines are relationships and c- encounters you're going to have with people. And in those relationships and those encounters, Christ comes into the middle of those conversations. Amen. Number five, God's intention for your marriage is to give you a place to practice loving your neighbor. Uh, let's talk about this one. Matthew 22, 22, 39, Jesus is talking about the two greatest commandments. And the first one is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. That's the 38th verse. And the second is like it, verse 39. And the second is like it, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. See, marriage is the laboratory where we develop our skills to love our neighbor. Marriage is where we learn to love someone who is much different from us. And that becomes our practice for out there. Right, now think about this one. If all you do is look at male and female and the differences there, that's a challenge. Am I talking to anybody? Let's say you even come from very similar backgrounds and you were raised in the same area, went to the same high school and all that. Let's say your families were the exact same size. It doesn't matter. You got a man and you got a woman, you got issues, (laughs) right? I mean, you're just different. I mean, our brains are different. Females will say theirs are better. I contend with that. No, but, but male and female have different brains, different brain development, different hormones, and those things affect us. Dudes, they affect you too. Okay, let's just be clear on that. So we've got all these things that make us different as male and female. And then we're brought together and, and, and then we have different home backgrounds. Peggy, my wife over here, she's one of 11 children in her family. She comes from a Roman Catholic background. She's the seventh of 11, seven daughters, four brothers. And then I come from a home, lots of breaking, lots of divorce, and I was raised by a stepfather and a mother and just me and my little sister. Okay, so I come from this broken background, sex, drugs, rock and roll in my family. My mom got pregnant with me at 14, had me at 15. There was a lot of brokenness, especially in the beginning of those, several, those first several years. And then I have a wife who's raised in a Roman Catholic family with intact parents, but then there was alcoholism there and, and 11 children. And so we get together and we're attracted to one another and we get together and like she's coming from a different planet. First of all, because she's female. Secondly, because she comes from a Roman Catholic family with 11 children. And, and I, think of thing, I think differently and look at things differently and you bring us together. And over the years, lots of conflict. Lots of tension. Most of it, her fault. (laughs) That is not true. Most of it, my fault. I just knew I'd get you there. Okay, so you, you have this relationship, and we're trying, you know, and we've likened marriage over the years to dancing. How many of you feel like you got two left feet? That really comes out in marriage. Right, in marriage, you're learning to dance with one another. And when you have a dance partner, you know, you're stepping on each other's toes and one of you is moving, one of you is supposed to be just kind of moving with while the other pulls and, and, and that's marriage. And, and, and when you're first learning to dance, it's awkward. 
Like, is my hand the right place? Am I doing this right? My feet are, I feel funky. And it's like, you want to quit? But the reality is, is that in that dance, you're learning how to dance in a way that will teach you and model for you how to love others. Martin Luther, the reformer, not Martin Luther King, but Martin Luther, the reformer, said this, how can I learn to love the neighbor outside my front door if I cannot learn to love the neighbor within my front door? And you see, it's learning to love that neighbor because the Scripture even calls us to love our enemy. And I'll tell you, there's times in marriage when you feel like that other person's your enemy. Right? Come on, liars. Come on. Case in point. Yeah, case in point. There it is, right? And so we, we, learn, we learn how to love one another and how to love each other when we're not at our best. My wife has seen things about me that I'm, I would be ashamed for anybody else to see. She has seen me at my absolute best and my absolute worst, and she loves me and forgives me, and vice versa. I've seen her at her best, and I've seen her at her worst, and, and the thing that we've probably, you know, if somebody was to say to us, what's, the ma- what, what's one thing you would say to have a good, healthy marriage? I would say, forgive, yeah. forgive, forgive, forgive. Because in marriage, you learn to do what Jesus said when he said, you know, when Peter says, Lord, how many times do we have to forgive if our brother sins against us? Seven, and Jesus said, 70 times seven. And Peter's like, What? And Jesus didn't mean 490 times. Well, it's 491, Lord, so I don't have to forgive now, right? That's not what he meant. He was using hyperbole. He was making a point. In human relationships, we have to forgive over and over and over again. And in doing that, we learn how to forgive the people we interact with all the time. Because we we know something, unforgiveness is poison. It's poison to your own soul. It's poison to your relationships. It's death. And so, and I know I'm belaboring this point, but God's intention for your marriage is to give you a place to practice loving your neighbor, right? Number two, (laughs) this is my second main point. God is committed to the success of your marriage. He's committed to the success of your marriage. Romans 8.31 says this, speaking of God's redemption plan, not speaking of marriage, but marriage is involved in that. The Apostle Paul says this, what shall we say about such wonderful things as these? If God is for us, who can ever be against us? You might be here today and be saying, I don't know if I can take this marriage any longer. You might be on the edge. You might be thinking, about divorce. You might be pondering it. You may have already started a process. You may already be going down that road in a stage of separation. And you are thinking to yourself, I can't do it. And here's my my challenge to you. If God be for you, who can be against you? All the demons of hell arrayed against you are not more powerful than God being on your side. All the people in your family who are saying, do it, do it, throw the bomb out, do it, do it, throw the bomb out. But if God be for us, who can be against us? What God has joined together, let no one put 
asunder. Let no one tear apart. See, God is the one that joined you together in marriage. Again, Matthew 19, 6 says, So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, I want you to think about this. That phrase, what God has joined together, in the Hebrew world, that spoke of oxen joined together and yoked together in a plow, where each must pull equally in order to bring on the plow. Among the ancients, they put a yoke upon the necks of a newly married couple or chains on their arms to show that they were to be one, closely united, and pulling equally together in all the concerns of life. Once two people vow before God and witnesses their commitment to one another, God considers their commitment to be until death do us part. If God has joined people in marriage, we are fighting against Him if we seek to dissolve that union. God is not always responsible for the circumstances that bring us together, but once we take those vows, He is now in it with us. Now, let me address popular culture idea. It's really important because it's all through the church. I see Christians say it all the time. But surely, God wants me to be happy. That becomes the most important thing in the world for people, their own happiness. And I get it. I want to be happy. Everybody here want to be happy? How many of you don't like being unhappy? <laughs> right? Okay, so God, God wants us to experience joy and pleasure. But our personal happiness must not be the number one motive behind our marriage. And, and this is what happens. People get married, honeymoon's over, life starts to happen, they go through crisis, they experience pain, loss, success, failure, working a lot, the sex isn't as great as it used to be, whatever it may be, and you begin to think, I'm losing something. You start to feel like, I've lost that love and feeling. I had to do it. I didn't do it in the first service, so I had to do it for you. Yeah. Right? You, you feel like you're losing the loving feeling. And this is what we think. Because I've lost the feeling, I'm not in love anymore. I'm not happy anymore. And the answer in our culture is end it and do another one. And then we'll do that for a while, and then I've lost that love and feeling on that one. End it, do another one. And what we don't understand is that that cannot be the main thing that holds us together. And I'm going to get into that in a minute. That loving feeling is going to ebb and flow. It's going to have highs and it's going to have lows. That's every relationship in life. That's how life is. That's the reality of being human. Think of all your relationships. They all have ebbs and flows. They have high points and low points. We must not take that low feeling as the evidence that this is the end. Or I'll hear this from people. After they've been married for a while and it's not going well and they're not real happy, they think, I made a mistake. And this is the, the second thing. I made a mistake. Oh, I married the wrong person. I've had so many people tell me, I married the wrong person. I made a mistake. I shouldn't have done it. Let's just say that's true. Let's say not that you married the wrong person, but let's just say you made a mistake. 
Let's say you were being driven by hormones. You were on the rebound. There were circumstances that were sketchy around the two of you getting together. And you went ahead and got married. And now you're like, oh, I made a mistake. What does the Bible show us? What does God say to us about those kind of circumstances in a relationship? Does it, give it, does it, does it let us off the hook? If the foundation was bad in the beginning, now you can end it and try again. Is that what the Scripture teaches? It doesn't. And I, I want to illustrate this with the most extreme example in the whole of Scripture. See, once there was a king named David, and he had several wives. I know, we're not going to get into that right now. I know, ladies, it wasn't right, okay? We'll just say that. But he had several wives. And he would lead his armies out into battle, but one spring, he didn't go to war. Instead, he was chilling at, 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 chilling at the crib, <laughs> He was chilling at his crib, and he walked out on the roof one day, and he looked down, and there was a beautiful woman bathing right in front of his eyes. And he went, I want that, and I'm a king, and I can have whatever I want. And using his authority and using his position, he sent a servant to her house, and she came to his house, and they had relations, intimate relations, and she got pregnant. And then David's like, oh, no, what am I going to do? Because she was a married woman, right? So then David starts to scheme, and he contacts the front of his soldiers at war, and he says, have Uriah the Hittite come home. I want to talk to him. And Uriah comes off the battlefield, and he's serving in David's army, and he's a faithful man. He's a good man. He's a warrior, and he's married to Bathsheba, this woman. And David says, hey, Uriah, you're a good brother. You've been killing it out there. Sorry, I couldn't help myself. You've been killing it out there. You're a great warrior. You're doing a great job for me. Listen, this is what I want to do. Have a little R&R, stay home, go spend some time with your wife and enjoy a weekend away. And Uriah says, no, my brothers are dying on the battlefield. I'm not going to do that. They're out there dying. I'm going back out on the battlefield. I'm not going to go home and enjoy a, a weekend with my wife when my own brothers don't get an opportunity to do that. And then David realizes, I'm in a pickle. Now what do I do? So David says, ah, the time-honored tradition, get him drunk. So David invites him over to his house for dinner. And all night long, he's giving him drinks. He's getting him drunk. He realizes if I get him drunk enough and send him home, nature will take care of itself, right? And so he gets him drunk. And uh, then he goes to Uriah and he says, Uriah, I want you to go home and spend some time with your wife. And Uriah's like, I don't care what you say, King David. I may be drunk, but I'm not that drunk. I'm going to sleep right here. And he literally sleeps at David's house right outside the door right? And so he wakes up the next morning, and David's like, I don't know what to do with this guy. So he writes a command. He seals it with his ring in wax with the holy seal of the king. He gives it to Uriah, and he says, take this to your commander on the front. Uriah takes the letter to the commander on the front, who is Joab. Joab breaks the seal and opens up the letter, and the letter says this, when the fighting is really intense, withdraw from Uriah and let him be struck down and killed in battle. And that's what happens. And David's like, yes, pulled it off. 
Oh, by the way, if you think the Bible's full of heroes that are really good moral people that we should all be like, think again. It's a story of a bunch of losers like me and the rest of us at different times in their life who God uses redemptively, okay? So, yeah, that's the beautiful thing about the, the Bible. Okay, so I, I'm, I'm stretching this out and belaboring it. Here's my point. A prophet gets the word of the Lord and the prophet, God tells the prophet, David did these things. And the prophet goes into David and, and rebukes him and tells him, you've sinned and, and this is wrong. And David breaks and repents and asks God to forgive him and uh, eventually... Bathsheba becomes his wife. And, and what's profound about this is the answer that God gives to the problem is not you've sinned, you've taken another man, man's wife, therefore you should divorce her and break the relationship off. The answer of God to the situation is now that you're together, stay true to that relationship and I'll redeem your sinful behavior, I'll redeem the evil that you've done and I'll make it right. How do we know that's true? Because out of David and Bathsheba came, came King Solomon. And out of King Solomon came the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus' lineage is made up of an adulterous king who's also a murderer. And interestingly enough, in, in that um, genealogy in Matthew chapter 1, Bathsheba is named, and listen to what it says, and Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. So even though in God's eyes she belonged to Uriah, once the two of them were together in a marriage, God was behind them, blessing that union, strengthening that union, and standing for that union. So listen, if God can do that with that kind of a marriage, God can restore and heal any situation. And if you're here today and you're like, I made a mistake, I married the wrong person, my word to you is you're in it, stay in it, get help, get counsel, work at it, pray at it, but stay together. Amen. Now, there are always exceptions which I cannot get into in depth or detail, but listen, if you're in an abusive relationship, and I'm not going to define what that means, but I mean real abuse, you know, if you're really being, if, you, if you're being physically touched and things are being done to you, get out of there, right? If, if there's ongoing adultery over and over again and there's, that person's not being true, there are reasons given within Scripture for divorce, but that's not what we're talking about today. We're talking about people who have just lost that love and feeling and now you're having some conflict and you don't even like being around each other and you see that person as your enemy and you're looking for a way out. My answer to you is God's not behind that. He won't support it. It doesn't matter what you feel or what you think he said to you. If it goes contrary to what scripture says, it's not the word of the Lord. You're not hearing the Holy Spirit. You're hearing a different spirit. Just saying. I love you, church. You still love me out there? Okay, good. Number two, God is committed to giving you the grace and the power you need when you feel weak and powerless in your marriage. This is really important. Sometimes we're weak and we're powerless and we don't feel like we can do this and we want to give up. And at those moments, God wants to give you the strength. 2 Corinthians 12, 9, the apostle Paul was dealing with a thorn in his flesh. I know some of you think your spouse is a thorn in your flesh. They're not. But Paul was dealing with this thorn in his flesh and, God's, and he said, God, deliver me out of this. Get me out of this. And God said to him, my grace is all you need. My power works best in weakness. So now I'm glad to boast about my weaknesses so that the power of Christ can work through me. In my experience as a pastor, I see way too many couples trying in their own strength 
to make their marriage thrive. Marriage cannot be what God intended it if you go alone. Let God be your strength and weakness. When's the last time after a conflict you turn to the Lord? You don't have to do it together at the time. If you can't barely stand the person's presence, fine. Go to another room, get down on your knees and say, God, I want to give up. I want to quit. I feel weak right now. But you promised that in my weakness, your strength would be perfect. So help. Help, God. Help. Amen? And lastly, this is my last sub-point here. God has designed the marriage covenant to be powerful enough to restore and revive love. God has designed the marriage covenant, the marriage relationship, to be powerful enough to restore and revive love. Marriage makes love grow more than love makes marriage grow. Marriage in God can restore your love. Listen to this quote by Larry Christensen in his book, The Christian Family. Love from God's point of view is not the basis for marriage. Stop. Did you hear what I just said? Love from God's point of view is not the basis for marriage. That goes completely against what our culture teaches. But the issue or outcome of a successful marriage, he also says, marriage gives to love a situation of stability and permanence wherein it can grow toward maturity. Marriage rescues love from the tyranny of strong but immature feelings. It forces a person to live out times of difficulty and win through to new depths of love and of understanding. What am I saying? In our popular culture, the highest love is romantic love. What C.S. Lewis called eros, erotic love, chemistry love, feeling love, right? And what happens when we get married is is we, maybe that brings us together. It's like, right? And fireworks and woo. I mean, it's amazing, right? And then life happens. Stress comes. You're tired. All that happens. And if you're counting on the spark that got the engine going to be a constant thing, that's just going to blow you up. And so what, what happens? Love has to mature. It has to grow. It has to go into new stages. And what marriage does is it provides a safe environment for love to grow and love to mature, for love to move into phileo, the love of friendship, deep brotherhood and sisterhood type friendship, for love to move into storge, the deep love of family love and connection, and for love to move into the highest love of all, agape, God's kind of self-giving, self-sacrificing love. The love that says, your best at my expense. Your best at my expense. Your best at my expense. I want to see you lifted. You benefited. You become all you can become. That's love. And when we begin to understand, it's a love of choice. It's a love that, that does what it's called to do in spite of the circumstances. It's a love that says, I'm here to make you better, to make you complete. It's not about my needs primarily, but it's about your needs. Can you imagine if you get a couple where both of them are doing that for one another, ironically enough, they're both getting their needs met when they live to fulfill the needs of the other. That's what God's design is. 
for that part of love to grow within marriage. And we know this is true because in other parts of the world, they have arranged marriages where people may, may in some cases, meet for the first time the day of their wedding. And you'd say, that's backwards and that's old and that's goofy. I'm going to tell you what, the statistics in those countries are that marriages last longer. So what's that tell us? Love can grow within the context of marriage. By the way, I'm not suggesting we get into arranged marriages. Please don't hear that. But what I am saying is love, love doesn't make the marriage. Marriage makes the love. And that's a different concept to what our culture teaches. Amen?